Hallelujah. Glory to God. And you may be seated in Jesus' name. Can you tell I'm not Pastor Justin? Yes, I'm not Pastor Justin. Both he and Annette are out of town with uh, family matters they're attending to. We want to hold them up in our prayers. So I'm going to stand in some very big shoes today and just believe for the Word of God to bless you. First of all, though, I want to say Happy Father's Day. To every father in the house, would all the fathers stand up, please? All the fathers stand to your feet. Oh, we thank God. We thank God for every father. May the Lord bless you abundantly in Jesus' name. And you may be seated. Oh, how we need our men. You know, it's kind of fashionable to put men down. That's so ungodly. God created them male and female. Our men, our fathers are God's idea. And we bless you in the name of Jesus today. Well, guys, I told the first service I'm a bit famous in Kenya for being long-winded. When we come to church, when we go to church in Africa, we go to church. Uh, the <laughs> this sister knows what I'm talking about. And, uh, you know, the parents bring food for the children. We bring water and juices to replenish bodily fluids and, you know, uh, singing, praying, dancing, shouting, we replenish and, you know, by the time we go home from church, we know we've had church. So um, I, I have a bit of a constraint on me today. And Eric and Nikki will tell you in the first service, I said, well, I'll skip over this and this. So I've got a message. We'll see how it comes out. Because what you write and then what you say is a, a bunch more than what you wrote. So we'll see how this turns out. The title of my message, Is There Not a Cause? Is There Not a Cause? Of course, Pastor Justin has been ministering a wonderful series on I Promise. And I anticipate every Sunday what the Lord has revealed to him. So uh, I spoke with him Tuesday and we confirmed I would do this today. I said, well, Pastor Justin, I'm believing to hear so that I can minister parallel to your message. So I'm not titling this, I promise, like he does, but it's parallel with the message that he's been delivering. And the phrase, I promise, is so powerful. I've really been taking that to heart and meditating on it. And I just want 
to for the matter of review, we always establish our foundational points. I just want to review the word promise. The word promise, church, is absolute. Now, it's important to understand an absolute. The word promise is pure. It is perfect. When God says, I promise, that word is pure. It is perfect and it is without limitation. Oh, how we need to understand that. Because we as human beings deal with limitations all the time. But there are no limitations on God and there are no limitations on his promises. So I have looked it up and the scholars say there, one scholar said there are 8,000 promises of God in the Bible. Another scholar said there are 9,000, I don't know, 200 and something promises in the Bible. So they don't agree on the number of promises. Church for all, we know they're infinite. <laughs> but and the, but that, that's the point I'm trying to make. Every promise of God is infinite. There are no limitations on the promises of God. So when God says, I promise, oh, how that should impact our lives. Oh, how much change should come into our thinking and our faith when God says, I promise. The word promise means word. The word promise means utterance, commandment. Church, it's such a powerful word. It means appointment. So that means God's got, when God makes a a promise, he's got divine appointments for us, for the fulfillment of that promise. The word promise means a weapon. The promises of God are our weapons of warfare. The word promise means plan. When God makes a promise, we know, hey, he's got a plan. And the word promise means, uh, that word plan means he has a way to bring the blessing of the kingdom of God into our lives. He has a plan to bring his blessing into your life, and into the lives of your family members. So that word, when he says, I promise, oh my goodness, he sends his word to heal us and to deliver us out of all our destructions. That is infinite. It's very important to know that God and to believe That God is faithful to his promises. Now, you may take a promise of God and feel like you're not seeing any results. Well, God is faithful to his promises. And that's part of our faith being formed within us. 2 Corinthians 1.19, this is the New Living Translation, says, For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no, 
This is the New Living Translation. He is the one whom Silas, Timothy, and I preach to you. And as God's ultimate yes, he always does what he says. In other words, even the very sending of Jesus Christ was God saying yes to mankind. Sending Jesus was God saying yes to you. How many of you in here have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Well, Jesus Christ is God's big yes to you. And God is faithful to his promises. As I pondered on this phrase, I promise, my thoughts went back to the first gospel promise, which is found in Genesis 3. And verse 15, God spoke it after the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. And all, I mean, this is the plan of redemption in Genesis 3, 15. And every other promise substantiates this first gospel promise. <clears throat> Genesis three fifteen in the King James says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed it will bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel church that word enmity is very important for the believer to understand right here god is making a distinction between his seed and the seed of satan and uh, God says, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed. And that word enmity is very strong. It means to be an enemy. There is enmity between us and Satan. There is enmity between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. You know, sometimes I run into believers that have a mixture. But if we can understand in God, there is no mixture. Remember, his promises are, first of all, pure. There isn't this mixture of light and dark. God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. Hallelujah. And the word in, so the word enmity means to be an enemy. We need to understand as children of light, the darkness is our enemy. We're not friends of darkness. It means hatred. Enmity means hatred. Bitterness. Antagonism. And animosity. So church right there. In Genesis 3.15, it is established forever that there is a distinction between God, his kingdom, his seed, Jesus Christ, that he was promising here that he would send, and that his seed, Jesus Christ, would crush the head of the enemy, the head of the kingdom of darkness, Right here, the gospel plan is laid out.
in Genesis 3.15. But as believers, it's very important to understand that between God's people and the kingdom of darkness, Satan and the kingdom of darkness, there is a great conflict. Church, you can't make peace with darkness. We're not to be a friend of darkness. But we're to be a friend of God and his kingdom. We're not to mix up our purposes. We've got some purposes of God. And then there are big areas in our lives that we're compromised. And we've made friends with the world of darkness. And we've made excuses for walking in that world of darkness in certain aspects of our life. Genesis 3.15 says there's to be a clear distinction between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, the seed of light, Jesus Christ, and the seed of darkness. There's to, we're to have the understanding we're in conflict with the world of darkness. And it was so from the beginning, from, from Genesis 3.15. And God promised here that he would crush the head of the kingdom of darkness. So Satan is under God's judgment. That judgment will one day reach its finality. When we see Satan, we are going to see with our own eyes, Satan thrown into the lake of fire forever. And that's the finality of his judgment. But actually, Satan was judged and defeated at the cross. Jesus Christ went to the cross of Calvary, and he overcame Satan. He stripped Satan of all his authority by his obedience to the plan of God. Let me just read Ephesians 2, 13 through 15 to you. This is a bit long, but it's very important that we have this comprehension from the Passion Translation. Now, we're talking about I promise. And see, these are foundations of faith to understand the magnitude that every promise should have in our lives. Colossians 2, beginning with verse 13. This realm of death describes our former state, for we were held in sin's grasp. But now we've been resurrected out of that realm of death, never to return, for we are forever alive and forgiven of all of our sins. Someone shout hallelujah. Oh, that's shouting ground. Verse 14, he, Jesus, canceled out every legal violation we had on our record and the old arrest warrant that stood to indict us, he erased it all. Our sins, our stained soul, he deleted it all 
and they cannot be retrieved. Everything we once were in Adam has been placed onto his cross and nailed permanently there as a public display of cancellation. Hallelujah. What a savior we have. Verse 15. Then, not only that, but then means there's more. Jesus made a public spectacle of all the powers and principalities of darkness, stripping away from them every weapon and all their spiritual authority and power to accuse us. And by the power of the cross, Jesus led them around as prisoners. In a procession of triumph, he was not their prisoner, they were his. Shout hallelujah again. So Jesus, we see at the cross, made a public display of Satan's defeat openly for all to see at church how important it is that we understand this. In fact, this is so significant. I want to say this is our ultimate cause in our generation is that we also through the promises, through the infinite, pure, powerful promises of God, that we take those promises and we, in our generation, make a public display of Satan's defeat. That's the assignment that's on the body of Christ. If you want to know why are you here and not in heaven, since you've already received the Lord, why don't we go straight to heaven? You're here to make a public display of the defeat of Satan and lead him around in triumph publicly over every assignment and every weapon he's ever formed against you. How many of us have had Satan form weapons against us? I have. I'm sure you have. Hey, well, our assignment is to take those promises, the word of God, and make a public display of Satan's defeat in our lives. Hallelujah. So when God says, I promise, oh, how we should pay attention. Church, this public display of Satan's defeat is our ultimate cause. Hallelujah. And it's, it's, we exercise this in conjunction with bringing multitudes into the kingdom of God through the blood of Jesus, our savior. Hallelujah. And so we exercise Satan's defeat. We introduce the world to the gospel. We invite them to come out of the kingdom of darkness and be born again, translated into the kingdom of God's dear son. This is our cause. This is why we're here. And we do it through 
the promises of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. The end is not yet. Seeing the final overthrow of Satan is not yet his final defeat. We are going to witness witness it. It's not yet, but church, it's inevitable. Everyone say, it's inevitable. Satan, say that, Satan is going into the lake of fire. Forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. Until the final end, the finality of his judgment. Jesus defeated him at the cross. We're called to publicly display that defeat so that souls can see, oh, there's a different way to live than I've been living. Oh, I didn't know God sent his only son to save me from my sin. But all of this is revealed through the promises of God. But until that final end, church, there is tremendous warfare. There is warfare between light and dark, good and evil, righteousness and unrighteousness, truth and lies, the the contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And at times it may look like Satan's winning, but church, I can tell you, he will not win. He will not triumph in the end. Hallelujah. We know with certainty through the promises that he's going into the lake of fire and brimstone. Shout hallelujah, somebody. So I want to say a few things about the cause of Christ. I'm calling this the cause of Christ. Church, the cause of Christ should be our cause. Living for myself, me, myself, and I, what I want, making my own goals independent of God, Uh, making my own choices without ever praying or seeking the will of God. Hey, that is not an option for someone who is dedicated to the cause of Christ. Hallelujah. Let me say a few things about the cause of Christ because this should be the centrality of our lives. The cause of Christ. First, the cause of Christ concerns God, God's will and purposes. The cause of Christ concerns God's will and God's purposes. So when you're making, I don't know, your yearly plan for your life or you go on a vision retreat and you and your family are asking God, what about our lives? Well, just no one understand this. Put God's will and God's purposes at the center of your life. Everything else stems from that. Secondly, the cause of Christ involves God's purposes, plans, strategies, duties, assignments, tasks, work, battles, anointings, And victories that it will take 
for us to fulfill God's mandate on our generation to enforce Satan's defeat and manifest God's kingdom in the earth. You will not manifest the kingdom of God unless we learn to enforce Satan's defeat. We will struggle and struggle, and it will be one lifelong struggle, believing to manifest the will of God until we come to the realization and revelation, oh, I must first enforce Satan's defeat. Hallelujah. He's the prince of the power of the air. The cause of Christ should be of much more importance to us than any other cause. I mean, there are many things that can be important in our life, but the center of our being, at the center, there should be, I live my life for the cause of Christ. This is why I'm on the earth. This is the most important thing to me. And it's the center and motive of my life. As believers, it's very important to understand that we're all called to serve the cause of Christ. This is the call of God on our lives. So we have to ask ourselves, is there anything in my life that is more important to me than the cause of Christ? Is anything, does anything supersede that? Does anything take up much of my time that does not involve the cause of Christ? The cause of Christ should be greater to me than anything else on earth. And why that's so important is because the cause of Christ demands obedience and obedience demands sacrifice. Church, I can tell you there is no obedience without sacrifice. You're going to live a sacrificial life if you make the cause of Christ the central theme of your life. And some of those sacrifices may be very dear, and God knows they're dear and costly. But it's so well worth it to serve the cause of Christ. Church, I want to say we don't obey Or dedicate ourselves to the cause of Christ for any fleshly reason. It's not to be seen. It's not to be recognized. It's not to be thought spiritual. It's not to be well known among men or any reason like that. But from our heart, we make the cause of Christ the central issue of our lives because We're advancing God's kingdom and we're enforcing Satan's defeat. Every promise of God relates to this cause. Every promise of God relates to the cause of Christ. Hallelujah. Now, there's a young man in the Bible who became the great king of Israel, David. But in 1 Samuel 17, we find him 
in the scripture as a youth. He was probably 16, 17 years old. I'm not going to read the story of David and Goliath. You know it very well. David was a tender of his father's sheep. But he also was became known as an instrumentalist. And when Saul, King Saul, would have seasons of madness, the palace officials would come and get David to come and play for King Saul until that madness abated somewhat. And then he would go back and tend his father's sheep. And when we come in to... 1 Samuel 17, the Philistines have risen up to make war against Israel. And David had three older brothers who were in King Saul's army. This is the army of Israel. Or I could say it this way, the army of God was the army of Israel. And so David's father, he was the son at home. His father sent David with food to take to his three older brothers who were on the battlefield. The Philistines were on one hill. The army of Israel was on another hill. And so uh, at that time, armies would sometimes fight. All the men would fight in a battle. But then it was the custom that each army could choose a champion. And a champion was a supreme fighter. Well, the Philistines had a champion. His name was Goliath of Gath. And he was one of the Nephilim giants. Uh, Scriptures tell us he was probably about nine feet, nine inches tall. Can you imagine? I mean, I can't even imagine Nine feet, nine inches. He must have weighed a ton or half a ton. I don't know. His armor weighed hundreds of pounds. And uh, we just can't imagine the size of this giant who was challenging daily the army of Israel. Have you ever felt like a giant was challenging you daily? I mean, it was just a constant, something is a constant challenge that you're dealing with. Well, maybe your challenge could be a Goliath in your life. But this was Goliath, the champion of the Philistines. And he, he had been coming out for 40 days challenging the army of the living God to send out their champion to fight with him. And if uh, the, the agreement was, if the Philistine champion won, the Israelites would serve the Philistines. I mean, this, this was a big battle. And if the Israelite champion won, then the Philistines would serve the Israelites. So a lot hinged on this battle. And so he challenged them every day. He would come out and curse them and mock them and call them dogs and cowards and just every, I I can't imagine the vile things that he was saying. Here comes 17-year-old David, the tender of the sheep. 
And he walks into the camp bringing his brothers food. And here the army of the living God is hiding behind rocks and trees. They're cowering and shaking with fear every time Goliath would present himself to challenge them. David's attitude was, when he realized what was happening, he said, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who has defied the armies of the living God? Who? I mean, he may be big. He may be fierce. He may know how to throw down a challenge. He looks like a great warrior, but who is he? He's uncircumcised. He doesn't have the promise of God with him. He has no promise of God with him. Are you with me, church? And so David's attitude was, who does this uncircumcised Philistine think he is anyway? Wow. That infuriated his brothers. They said, who do you think you are? I mean, they ragged him good. But we see David's heart. In 1 Samuel 17, 46, we see his motive in speaking up to his brothers. And at this time, he's facing Goliath. And he tells Goliath what's going to happen. He says, this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, Goliath. And I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day, I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. This was his motive in taking up the cause of Christ was that God would be glorified. That the name of God would be magnified, even in the midst of his enemies. Hallelujah. And so, David, you know, his brothers just told him what a dog he was. But Saul heard uh, about David and eventually gave him his armor. And you know that David defeated Saul magnificently. But David said something in 1 Samuel 17, 29. He said, is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? I want you to let that phrase sink into you. In his generation, he said to the army of God, is there not a cause? I want to say to you today in our generation, these same words, is there not a cause in our generation? Do we not have a righteous cause in our generation? Are there not issues in our generation when we need to stand up and say, what you are doing is unrighteous. It is not right. It is not godly. Is there not a cause in our generation, church? 
So we have to face the same issues that the army of God faced when, when David spoke to them. We have to face, there was a cause in that generation in church, there's a cause in our generation. And we're, we're the army of God in our generation. Look at the person sitting beside you and say, you're part of the army of God. Church, in that day, it was the army of Israel cowering behind rocks and trees. In our day, I'm looking at the army of Israel. I mean, the army of God in our day. We are the army of God. Called to challenge the enemies of the will of God, to challenge the enemies of the kingdom of God in our generation. Somebody say amen, somebody. I've got this question for you in our generation. Is there not a cause? In our generation, does the army of God need to stand up? In our generation, does the army of God need a voice? Hallelujah. The word cause is the word debar, D-A-B-A-R. And this word cause is fascinating in the original language. It means word. So David was saying, is there not a word concerning this situation? The word cause, uh, debar, means commandment. It means decree. And the word debar means promise. David was saying, is there not a promise that God has spoken concerning this situation? Has God not sent his word and spoken of what he will do to his enemies? Is there not a cause... Church, we just have to ask ourselves this question. Is there not a cause in our generation? Has God released decrees in our generation? I think it's so important that we not make our decrees solely about our personal lives. I mean, so often I close the Bible or I pause whatever it is I'm listening to, and I tell you, I stand up and I go after it. Because I know in our generation, we have a cause. It's the cause of righteousness. It's the cause of God in our generation. Our cause is to publicly display the defeat of Satan and be used as instruments of God to bring multitudes into the kingdom of God. This is our cause. And I feel like sometimes um, we as Christians are to, um, <clears throat> how to say this, soft-spoken about our cause might be a nice way to put it. Very soft-spoken about our, our cause instead of fearless warriors in the army of God, which is what we're called to be. We are God's army in our 
generation. We know the end of the story when David fought Goliath. He won the victory handily. I want to say a key about the phrase, I promise. And even the story of King David, the promises are to be used in impossible situations because they can never fail. A very important key about the phrase, I promise, is it's not the size of the giant that you're facing. Goliath was a giant of all giants. I don't know if there's ever been another giant like Goliath. So it's not the size of the giant that you're facing, but it's the size of the fight that's in you. It's the size of the fight that's in you. How do we fight? We fight with the promises of God. Hallelujah. Our promises are sharper than any two-edged sword. Dividing asunder soul and spirit, joints and marrow, even to the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Hallelujah. I tell you, our promises can go where nothing else can go. 1 Timothy 6.12 says, fight the good fight of faith. Church, we are called to be war fighters. Put your hand on your heart and say, I am called... To be a war fighter. Now you may not look like much. I know one time um, in Kenya, if I can recall the story. uh, Oh, one of my members had invited me to go to a meeting and speak. And the head of the organization turned to my member Godfrey and said, this is your pastor. And he said, yes, this is my pastor. And he looked at me and said, but she's so humble. Now, you can take that two ways. You know, humble can be unpretentious, which I hope is what he meant. Or in Kenya, it can mean she doesn't look like much. So, (laughs) you know, humble as in... You don't look like much. So, but in the army of God, it doesn't matter what we look like. We have the promises. Hallelujah. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what your background is, what advantages or disadvantages you've, you've experienced in your life. We have the promises. God has said, I promise. And he's told us, fight the good fight of faith. Hallelujah. I, I want to tell you this kind of warfare takes examination of our lives and dedication. You know, I know when you go into training in the military, I think they pretty well examine you thoroughly. I mean, aren't you observed day after day to the mi- and corrected in the minutest of details? And if you've got a bad attitude or a wrong attitude, I tell you, they're going to jump on that. A good trainer does that. 
A good trainer wants to help you develop your strong points, but they are going to identify your weaknesses. Hallelujah. So to be a war fighter in the kingdom of God, church, it takes self-examination and it takes dedication. Let's read in Mark 8, 34 through 36. This is the Amplified Bible. Jesus called the crowd together with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to be my disciple, listen, a war fighter, part of the army of God, a change maker in our generation. He said, if anyone wishes to be my disciple, he must deny himself. Oh, my goodness. Set aside selfish interests. In other words, make room for the cause of Christ in your life. And take up his cross, expressing a willingness to endure whatever comes. And follow me, believing in me, conforming to my example in living, and if need be, suffering or perhaps dying because of faith in me. For whoever wishes to save his life in this world will eventually lose it through death. But whoever loses his life in this world for my sake and for the gospels will save it from the consequences of sin and separation from God. For what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world with all its pleasures and forfeit his soul? So taking up the cause of Christ as the central motive and issue of your life takes separation and dedication. And that means we have to examine our lives, be willing to examine our lives. In Luke, uh, I want to look at another aspect of this forming that is so important. And that is God gave the promise. So we have the promise, I promise. Well, God gave the promise that he would send the Holy Spirit to us. And that is called the promise. Jesus told his disciples in Luke twenty four forty nine, tarry until the promise is given from on high. And so we have the promise, the word, but it takes the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, to be a witness of Jesus Christ and be part of the army of God. And we know the Holy Spirit was poured out in Acts 2. And uh, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. I love the way the Passion Translation puts it. It says they were all filled and equipped with the Holy Spirit. And were inspired to speak in tongues. Empowered by the Spirit to speak in languages they had never learned. To take up the cause of Christ and be part of the army of God. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is so needful. 
If you've not been baptized in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues, this is a mighty part of your equipping. We have the promise and we need the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's a mighty part of our equipping. So there's much that could be said there, but I want to come. This is my last point in Acts 3. In verse 19, this is the beginning of the end. I cannot tell you when the end will come because I'm also famous for saying, church, I'm closing. And then I think of something else to say. Church, this is my second closing. And then I think of something else to say. So we will see how it goes. Hallelujah. Acts 3 and verse 19 in the Amplified Bible, this is core to what I wanted to share with you today. It says, so repent, change your inner self, your old way of thinking, regret past sins. What that means is don't hold on. Do you know why some people can't go free of sin? They've quote unquote repented and repented. And they get caught up in something, they repent, a space of time passes, they're caught up in it again, they repent, and then it's just a cycle. It's because they don't stay in this place of repentance until they don't love that sin anymore. Why do you keep going back to a sin? You still love it. You haven't stayed in that place of repentance until change comes in your heart. Hallelujah. So we regret past sins and we let that regret, sorrow for sin, other translations call. Godly sorrow leadeth to repentance. But that's not the whole work of repentance. Regret for sin is not the whole work of repentance. The work of repentance is to bring you to the point that that sin has no power over you. You do not love it anymore. That is repentance. If you say, I'm sorry, that is not repentance. Even Father, forgive me is a very shallow part of repentance unless you're putting your whole heart into it. Repentance involves wholeheartedness. What is repentance? It's the Holy Spirit working the cross into our will. It's the Holy Spirit working the cross into our thinking. I'm telling you, this takes time. It's not a quick deal. Not when you're dealing with habitual sin. Habitual bad attitudes. Habitual anger. Habitual addiction. You've stumbled and stumbled and stumbled and stumbled. But I've repented. No, you haven't. You have not repented. 
Regret for past sins goes deeper than I'm sorry. So repent. This is key for every Christian to mature. This is how God works maturity into our lives. This is how we're transformed. This is a transformative principle. This is how we grow up in Christ. It can be painful. But I'm telling you, it will be life transforming. So repent. Change your inner self. Your old way of thinking. Regret past sins. Now, we don't live in regret, but godly sorrow or regret is to motivate us to get with God. And return to God. Here's the whole purpose of repentance. Seek his purpose for your life. Is that up there on the screen? Okay, that's the Amplified Classic. This is the AMP. Okay, you don't have that. Okay, listen to the AMP. This is updated. This is the newest version of the Amplified. It says, so repent. Change your inner self, your old way of thinking. Regret past sins and return to God. Seek his purpose for your life. This is the purpose of repentance. You are seeking the purpose of God for your life. You're not in his purpose. You're not in the level you need to be in of his purpose. Repentance. You may uh, go into a season of repentance and it's not that you feel like you've done anything wrong, but you're not where you need to be. And you know that, you know, I've been in a sentence of repentance. What is repentance? It's humbling ourselves. It's submitting our heart. It's asking for the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, work the work that I need worked in my heart. I want to be willing to say yes to anything God asks me to do. That's the work of repentance. It becomes a lifestyle. If you allow this to work in your life, you will lead a life of uh, a lifestyle of repentance that enables you to walk in the spirit. I'm going to have to close, but let me tell you... A couple of things about repentance. Repentance is always about coming into agreement with God. Always about coming into agreement with God. And church, we want to be in agreement with God in every single facet of our life. It's about coming into agreement with God. This is, this is the purpose of repentance. So always know going into a season of repentance or a time of repentance is not saying, God, forgive me. You know, I snapped at my wife. I screamed at the kids. I uh, didn't get my work done today. And uh, it's, you know, those things you may need to make mention of. 
But see, God wants to go deeper and deal with root causes. Sometimes I've identified uh, attitude I didn't like. I could tell, mm, this is grieving. This response in my heart is grieving the Holy Spirit. And I will come before the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, I repent of this. I'm, I'm not pleased with it. I know you're not pleased with it. Tear this down. I don't know where this came from. Pull it down, tear it down, uproot it, and overthrow it. I do not want this structure of thinking or emotional response in my heart. I don't want this in my heart. Tear it down, tear it up, deconstruct it. And right in that spot, build and plant the kingdom of God. This is the purpose of repentance. It's it's not to feel like, oh, I repented. Oh, no. God wants to do a mighty work of building his kingdom in our hearts. Somebody say, amen. So know that the purpose of repentance is always to come into agreement with God. It's not to make you feel bad. It's not to make you feel like a dead dog. (laughs) You know, the lowest of the low. No. It's to come into agreement with God. And then my last point, this is my final closing. (laughs) Hallelujah. Repentance is all about hearing. So you know when you... Come before God. And really we need to learn to walk with a repentant heart. But as you come before God, just ask the Lord, give me ears to hear anything you would say to me. Because you don't, I I never know what he's going to bring up. What he's going to reveal. I I never know because see, we don't know the roots Of where something entered our hearts and lives. He knows. So you have to be willing to hear anything the Holy Spirit wants to say to you. And it will probably cut. It will probably sting. You may go, ouch, ouch, ouch. Before it's all said and done. But I'm going to tell you the end result will be deliverance. And this is why we repent. We want to be delivered. We don't just want to put a band-aid over our issues. We want them out. And we want the kingdom of God in. Can someone say amen? So the Lord has taught me. Be go. To a place of repentance, be prepared to hear anything and come into agreement with God. Psalm 86, 11, I'm ending, still ending. This is still part of my final ending. Psalm 86, 11 says, teach me your way, Lord. Hey, that's so significant. 
Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness or your promises. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Not one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom. Not yes (laughs) and maybe, oh no. We want God to work an undivided heart in us. So say yes and be willing to hear anything. And this is my final, final, final scripture. (laughs) Hallelujah. Going back to Genesis 3.15. When God said, you know, My son's going to crush your head. You'll bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. I mean, that was the utter defeat of Satan. Well, Romans 16, 20 in the New King James says, now take this personally, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. I want you to take that scripture for yourself personally. It is the will of God to crush Satan's head under your feet. Oh, mighty warrior of God. Who has taken up the cause of Christ. It is God's will to crush Satan's head. I mean, in Kenya, when we first went to Kenya, there was a particular tribe that we were called to. And uh, the Kenyan or Kiswahili word for Satan is shatani. And you never say it mildly. In Africa, you never say it. No, it's vigorous. Like, um, we have defeated you. Everyone say, Shatani. That's the word for Satan. And when we first went to Kenya, I mean, it was shocking at first. It was like we would say the word Satan and we were having to use. Um, Thank you. We were having to use translators. And so Wade, my late husband, or I would say Satan or the devil. And there, of course, we would pause while the translator would translate for us. But when he came to the word shatani, everyone whooped and clapped. And it was like a bolt of lightning went through the room. And they'd stand up and stomp on him and dance on him. Thank you, Pastor Rick. What were we doing? Making a show of him openly. Hallelujah. I am looking at the army of God. And if you've not realized you're in the army of God, you've been inducted today is your day of induction. Hallelujah. Everyone stand up, please. And lift your hands before the Lord. I want to pray for you.
Father, I just want to thank you for this precious people. How precious they are. This army of God. And I thank you today that you have clothed us with your promises of victory over our enemy, Satan. Lord, I thank you that a spirit of victory has come on your people. And today we take up the cause of Christ, making a show of Satan openly, And winning multitudes into the kingdom of God, we take up the cause of Christ as the central issue of our lives. Father, clothe us with might, clothe us with power, clothe us with the ability of heaven to make a show of Satan openly. I thank you that from this day forth, we enter into a new level of victory. And may the victorious one shout, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Give the Lord praise.